Hi, welcome to the Indie Immersive Podcast, a discussion hub for indie developers that are making experiences for immersive technologies, namely virtual and augmented reality. I'm Eric Wu, and the topic of today's episode is artificial intelligence, and I'm here today with Joey Mansfield. He's worked a lot with building AI, and he's even created his own AI framework, and he's applying that to a project that's targeting virtual reality devices. Thanks for joining us today on this Friday night. Yeah, man, I'm happy to be here. Love talking AI. Why don't we just jump right into it? Can you tell me a little bit about yourself and what your background is? Yeah, man, absolutely. So uh, I'm a student at Ohio State. I'm actually graduating here in just uh, two months. Uh, that'll be December. I think it's worth mentioning I'm, I'm a bit of an older student. I'm 31, and uh, I say that's relevant because I've, I've actually got a pretty lengthy background in computer science. Well, not lengthy to some people, but I've, um, I've got about seven years of professional experience. I had known that you were in college and you were about to graduate, but I didn't know that you had professional experience with computer science. And that makes a lot of sense because whenever we would talk about what you were working on, I was like, wow, this is crazy that this student is working on all these complex things. And it does make a lot of sense that you've had a lot of experience you know, programming and seven years is a lot of experience for sure. Um, so, so yeah, that, that's, that's uh, pretty illuminating for me. Uh, why don't we talk a little bit more about how you got interested in AI? Because uh, that's something that for me is it comes off as really intimidating. And and that's why I, I also am not surprised to hear that you've been working and programming for so long, because it's not something that I would do um, personally, because it seems like such a daunting task. Yeah, and I think that's really common for a lot of people. Uh, you know, you, you hear artificial intelligence, and then you see what artificial intelligence is doing out in industry today, um, it's, yeah, naturally it's going to be intimidating. I never really touched artificial intelligence until I started game development. And mm. what got me into AI, um, you know, the game development, that's also how I got into VR development as well. Uh, the two things kind of coincided. So the reason for that is, when when VR came out, you know, with the consumer headsets in, I don't know, 2015 or 16, the game that I wanted to play, it just didn't exist. So if you can imagine, like, uh, you know, that you've got the Madden series, the 2K series, um, the EA Live series, these are all sports games. None of them, or even any any game kind of resembling a sports game like that, was out. And that's what I wanted. You know, I, I wanted to be able to play versus um, AI and have, you know, a team versus team experience. And it just didn't exist. So if, if you look at a sports game like that, uh, the AI is such a big component of the user experience that it kind of just surfaced in this project as, as being the area that needed the most focus. I, I guess we haven't introduced your project formally, but there's a funny story behind how I met Joey that kind of talks to that context that you just just offered is, uh, when I was prototyping my own project, uh, I was doing the earliest versions of the enemy behavior, and I was really struggling to even, you know, grasp how to do the enemy behavior for just one agent, you know, one one boss at a time. And my game just so happens to be sports related too. Instead of battling these big bosses, you play basketball against them. Um, and so when I was around the development community. Uh, asking for help about how I could do that. Everyone, like multiple people were telling me about this guy who was making like a full on five on five basketball AI driven game in VR. And I was like, oh my God, I need to 
meet this guy and just kind of pick his brain a bit. And, and I did, and I reached out to you and you were gracious enough to show me a little bit under the hood and, and show me videos of it. And I was just completely blown away. So, so yeah, that, that's why he was talking about, you know, sports AI is because he's been working on a five on five basketball AI game, but why, why don't we jump into that? Can you tell us a little bit more about your project? I don't, I don't want to speak for you. Yeah, no, sorry. You're right. I did not uh, formally introduce it, but yeah, so it's, it's a basketball game as well. And uh, you and I, we're we're kind of in uncharted territory. There aren't many indie devs out there. I honestly, I don't know of any that are working on projects like this. So um, yeah, it's it's kind of a crazy thing that we met, and here we are doing this podcast. But so my project, um, I call it buckets. And if you're if you're a sports fan and you know uh, and you know basketball and you know Kyrie Irving and you've heard him say uh, buckets on. Um, the Uncle Drew videos and um, you know it's it's just kind of a pl- a playful playful name. Yeah, the game is with. about getting buckets. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like get buckets. So, ah um, oh man, I I started working on it in 2016, and um, that's crazy to say out loud, but it's supposed to be a full five on five basketball simulation game, and I'm really aiming for AI that's on a level comparable to something like you'll see in one of the big AAA studios. Uh, it sounds kind of ridiculous to say out loud. It's not it ridiculous probably- at all because I've seen what you've done. And it, I, when I first saw it, I was like, well, this is this dude just basically created NBA 2K's AI system by himself. I mean, I was over there struggling with just one. I mean, first of all, my basketball game is not realistic. It's, you know, a fantasy where you're battling these big bosses with magic abilities, you were like shooting for like realistic AI behavior, five on five, you know, assist shooting, all that stuff by yourself. And, and yeah, it does seem a little ridiculous for you to say, Oh, I was doing it by, you know, I was just making this, but you, you, you're well on your way. I mean, it seems how, so how far along are you actually? Cause I haven't seen it in a little bit. First of all, it's really flattering to hear you talk like that. Cause I don't get a whole lot of opportunities to talk basketball AI with anybody. So yeah, I mean, we, we, we're basically the only two doing that right now, but, but yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So first of all, thanks. I appreciate it. That, that feels amazing to hear you say it. Um, how far along is it? So in 2000, let's see, 2017, the very end of the year, I released a demo out in the uh, community, you know, just to a few, few people to get some feedback. Um, and it was a, a, a working game with a full landing page and uh, different different maps, uh, options, uh, menus. You know, it was it was a full working game. Um, and while I didn't expect stellar feedback, I I, I was a little let down by what I, I got back. Um, one common theme that kept coming up was you need to do some more work with your animations using the framework that I had at the time. It just wasn't really feasible to go in there and start inserting new um, behaviors for the artificial intelligence to facilitate the kind of animations that were needed. So I kind of just pressed pause on that project at that point, and I've been working on the AI ever since. So we're going on two years now for that. Can you explain the fundamental difference between a standard, you know, simplistic enemy behavior AI implementation 
such as the one in my game where it's it's really only one or a very few agents running at the same time, or, or as opposed to something more robust such as your AI framework where there's a bunch of different AI agents running simultaneously and harmoniously and interpreting behavior of one another. Uh, what What is the difference between those two? Uh, first, I guess with the word robust, at least in computer science, what you're traditionally referring to is some kind of computer program that can handle errors in a, elegantly. Mm. Um, and I'm, I'm using errors in like a, an abstract, an abstract way. So for artificial intelligence, if you're, if, if you want something robust, you want it to not look stupid as frequently as possible. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, I totally get what you mean because yeah. So <laughs> yeah, with, sorry, go on really basic, like really basic systems. I mean, you, you kind of see, uh, like a, a more mechanical uh, behavior start to arise, repetitive things. Um, you find areas that you can exploit. And that's not always the case for basic frameworks. Uh, I, I don't want to give the impression off that uh, I, like, I, I think that a certain approach is uh, inferior to some of the others. Um, you'll probably hear some bias when I, you know, when I, when I talk about it, but... Uh, so, so yeah, basic AI frameworks, and I'm not sure exactly which one you're using. I, if I had to guess, I'd say you're using a finite state machine. I'm using behavior trees right now. Are but, you really? Yeah, I'm using behavior trees right now. But I, I get what you're saying in that you don't want it to mess up a bunch because, uh, uh, because both finite state machines and behavior trees are all about having very like defined situations so that you don't run into edge cases and you don't have yeah. to like, improvise. When you say mechanical, that makes so much sense to me and it really speaks to me because the only way to make it so that it doesn't mess up and not throw a bunch of like weird situations at it is to have it really streamlined and be mechanical. I think that's why really rudimentary AI systems in games, you, you see a lot of predictable behavior and like, an enemy behavior because you can't really afford for the enemies to react in, in unpredictable ways. First of all, props with the behavior tree. That's, that's pretty awesome, dude. So when I started, I, I went with the, the finite state machine or FSM for short, you know, I went that route, but if you're a seasoned, seasoned AI developer, I'm willing to say that you can take uh, a, a behavior tree and, you can you can make some stellar game AI. Um, what was what was the game? So, Alien Isolation. That was it. They they used the behavior tree, and um, it's it's pretty remarkable the way the aliens' behaviors evolve over time. It's convincing that he's learning the user's behaviors and tendencies. Those developers they they have a few clever tricks where they're able to make this learning appear like it's actually happening and they do that by blocking off parts of the tree until some kind of condition is met and the alien has oh, learned something that's really smart. yeah so that makes a lot of sense yeah but one thing that you keep getting back to is the amount of defining that you have to do um and it, for a behavior tree it's not as it's not as intense as a finite state machine but they have i i think over a hundred different leaf nodes or, 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 or something like that, which that's a lot of leaf nodes. And yeah. to break it down um, for any listener, you know, a, a leaf node 
if, if we're talking about a, a tree structured algorithm, a leaf node is going to be what's at the very bottom. And at the top, you've got your trunk. So the leaf node would just be the end behavior that you're observing from the AI. So, I mean, if you've got a hundred of those, yeah. think, think about the management that's going to go into that kind of code base. I think I, I might've had maybe like 15 or 20 different defined behaviors. And I was trying to maintain that within a finite state machine. And, uh, you know, the feedback I was getting for the, from the, the demo I sent out was, Hey, you know, you know, uh, try and add this behavior with this animation or, um, you know, something like that. And honestly, I, I couldn't do it. I, I, I just couldn't do it. There were too many dependencies amongst uh, between the states. So with a finite state machine, you have to explicitly define, can this state go to this state? And if not, which state can it go to? And, you know, when you try to add new behaviors in there, it's just a huge mess. So um, it's kind of hard to really put a label on what I've been developing. But if, if I was going to match it, close to another system that's out there. Um, I, don't, I don't know if you've ever heard this before, but people talk with some kind of like love for fears, AI system. Have you ever played fear? No, no, I haven't. Can you tell me about that? I haven't. Yeah. I haven't played it either, hmm. but you know, I was, I was developing AI, you know, I was always online talking to other developers about it. And um, people started talking about fears, AI. Uh, and what it uses is a, uh, it's called a goal-oriented action programmer, um, mm. or GOPE for short. Is that like an industry known term, or is that just like the custom implementation for fear that they use? It is, yeah. I, I think now it's it's pretty much just an in- industry known term, yeah. Mm. And you know what's what, what's kind of funny about that is um, later on I, I started studying AI at Ohio State and. One of my professors, you know, all these different algorithms that we learn, they all have these acronyms that, you know, you can pronounce. And I mean, some of them are just ridiculous, but yeah, so, so GOPE is definitely something that's known amongst the industry. Can you say that one more time? I want to make sure I research it. What is GOPE? Goal-Oriented Action Programming. Got it. So this is one of the things that I get most excited about, and I... I I'm sure I've bored a hundred people to death trying to get them to listen, but so it, I think it's the most interesting implementation of game artificial intelligence. So if you think about the GPS that's in your phone, mm-hmm. I know that's like a huge jump, like the GPS in your phone. Well, if you, if you want to go somewhere, you know, you, you type in where you want to go and it brings out a, brings out a path that you want to go to, Right. That algorithm most likely is A star. It's just a search and it finds something that you want it to find. But the implementation that most everyone's familiar with is like you, you type in some kind of destination and it gives you the best path to get there. We see it in video games with, um, you know, the characters and you want to tell them how to go somewhere. Um, well, if you're working in Unity or um, Unreal, we're pretty spoiled and you can just use the tools that they give you and say, Hey, go here. And it does all this under the hood. But you think about this algorithm that can find a path. Well, you can actually use that to do a lot more than 
find paths. Search algorithms live in a part of computer science uh, known as graph theory. And it's graph theory is a lot more abstract than just point A to point B. So what you can what you can do is say, hey, I don't want to find a position in space like you'd be asking from your GPS. But you can say, hey, I want to find the smartest behavior. Man, that is just that's mind blowing because I'm one of the people that only saw A star as a pathfinding algorithm. I didn't even yeah. extrapolate and realize that you could find like like the Occam's razor to a behavior or any other sort of thing besides just location. That's super interesting. Yeah. You're not alone. Uh, when, when I when I heard about this, um, you know, my, it kind of mind numbed me at first. I hadn't I hadn't studied these algorithms yet in school. Um, and I'd actually written an A-star algorithm before, uh, you know, just just for fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I realized how how cool that makes me sound. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, you're being sarcastic. That is pretty cool, man. And, and you're right. A lot of people lean on the implementations that are standard in these common game engines. But whenever you want something custom and, and if you're if you're like a studio or something, you're probably not going to be using those. You're probably going to be developing your own AI. And, and it, yeah, it starts with something good- as basic as A-star. Right. That's a good point. So anyways, like it it numbed my mind too, you know, like, well, I know how it works with coordinates. How can you give it behaviors? So we don't really need to get too deep into the, you know, how it does it, but um, we'll just let me carry out the GPS analogy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Let's cycle back to the GPS analogy because I'm curious where you're going with that. Sure. So um, an example I... I think one of the first examples I read was say you've got an AI agent and you want him to go and open a door and walk through it. Mm-hmm. All right. So the agent actually walking through the door, the analogy within the GPS is the destination. So his action of walking through the door is equivalent to the destination city that you type into your GPS. So what the algorithm has to do is figure out how to get you there. So in GPS, it lays out a string of streets that can get you there either in the shortest distance or the fastest amount of time. Uh, and that's that's an important um, that's an important point is it can give you a, several different paths that are of some kind of value for a few different reasons. But so that's your GPS and. If you're looking at the behavior planner, it's got to give you a set of behaviors that can actually let the agent walk through the door. So those behaviors that lead up to the agent walking through the door, they're equivalent to the different streets that the GPS would give you to get to your destination mm. city. So GPS, at least I'm pretty sure everybody's got this now, but if, I mean, if you're driving with your GPS on, you're coming up on traffic, say, 10 miles down the road. It's going to chime in and say, hey, look, you're coming up on traffic. Do you want to take this alternative route? It can save you 10 minutes. So we've got a traffic jam. And then I want to equate that to something with the with the AI, uh, or at least the behavioral AI. Say the door is locked, or for whatever reason, it, it can't be open. That would be like your traffic jam coming up in the GPS it just handles it by finding another path to get you around it. 
Well, it's, it's no different with the behavioral AI. It sees that, but it's constantly comparing the different paths. And it, um, it uses a costing algorithm to find the cheapest path. So say your AI can go search for a key or say he's got like an ax that he can pull out and he can start banging at the door until he breaks it down. You know, those, those options are much better than just trying to open it repeatedly while it's locked. Cause you know, he'd never get through. Mm-hmm. So you've got these unexpected situations that arise in the real world with GPS and traffic jams. And then also with AI too, you know, as an AI designer, there's so many things that you can't account for. Even with the example I gave, like that's a, you should probably be accounting for uh, doors in your own video game, but there's a ton of things that come up that you can't account for. Yeah. That's where the beauty of an algorithm like this exists. It can find something that works for your edge or corner cases. Would you say then that that would be the defining factor between choosing it? For example, if I were to start a new video game from scratch and I knew that there was going to be enemy behavior, and if I knew that there was going to be a bunch of, different edge cases. And I knew that there, you know, to use your analogy, I knew that there was going to be a bunch of variables, not only like different types of traffic, but different filters that I would need. And, you know, maybe I wanted to avoid tolls or, or, and whatnot. Um, would that, would those be the factors in deciding whether or not you wanted something simple, like a, a finite state machine slash behavior tree versus something like a custom implementation that's more robust? Yeah, that's, yeah, that's, that's exactly where I think you would start to draw that line is, you know, you've got, you were, you were mentioning like tolls and um, once, once your variables start to grow, the amount of code you have to write in a finite state machine grows exponentially. Um, yeah, absolutely. And you're, when you're, when you mention something like a toll, um, I don't know, I don't know how much farther I'll go into this here, but you've got, uh, you've got this behavior planner. It starts starts looking at a lot of things to make the smartest decision so say say your car driver in your video game doesn't have any money that's a that's a parameter of your agent well it can factor that in to the calculation when it's planning the behavior path and yeah it would take it around the toll whereas if you tried to do that with a more um primitive structure like a finite state machine uh you know you're gonna have to explicitly code all of that in there mm-hmm. Yeah. With this, you don't even have to explicitly code it in there. One of the most limiting factors in making an AI complex is just the sheer maintenance and the amount of like code that require each different node or different branch requires, um, because it all has to interact with one another. So that's that's one of the most limiting factors for me is is I don't want to add another ability because I need to now know how that interacts with like literally every other thing inside of my behavior tree, and there's just an exponential chance that something some sort of interaction messes it up and so the maintenance of it and also just the cross-checking of it gets so unruly that i it literally limits the scope of what i can do and you don't have as much maintenance and and not as much code as long as you have the infrastructure in place to make it more open-ended you hit the nail on the head you i mean you're absolutely right it you you start exposing by writing more code to account for all the different um, transitions that can take from state to state, from be, behavior to behavior. You have to write more code. That's more maintenance. 
but you're also opening up more space for bugs. And yeah, what I, what I was saying is when you add a new behavior with something like a, a goal planner, you don't have to do any of that. What you have are called prefects and effects. Effects, we all know what an effect is. Like um, if you punch somebody, they're, they're, they're going to get mad, right? So you mm-hmm. punched them and they got mad. That was an effect. However, for a goal planner, you need a prefect too for your behavior. So the example I just gave was punching. For uh, a prefect to punch somebody, I don't. you have to have an arm. If somebody's cut off your arm, <laughs> you can't punch them. And the last thing you have to say about it is, is this a goal state or not? The framework of a goal planner accounts for everything if you provide it with those parameters. So you just have to say, this is or is not a goal state. Here's the prefix. Here's the efix. And then you just slide it right in there into your system. And that's it. Now, that wow. sounds really. Yeah, I mean, it sounds really easy, right? Um, no, it doesn't. But yeah, I get what you're saying. It's it's a definitely a more elegant solution than laying yeah. down all these custom paths, trying to predict every single possible scenario. Instead, you're just laying down the goals and then allowing the framework to figure out everything else in between those goals. Yeah, exactly. Wow. Exactly. So the, the problem just comes up, you know, uh, with with writing it. Well, one thing that I've been thinking about as you talk about AI and and these multi-threaded complex solutions is that uh, I I see that a lot of the AI is being done on cloud right now. Do you think that that's the future of AI because you can have these supercomputers computing everything for you on the cloud and then you just sync up to it? It's an extremely interesting question. What what you just put out there, you know, with cloud computing, this the workspace that you and I are in with augmented reality, virtual reality. It just needs so much power to compute everything. And the drive is for smaller and smaller headsets, um, lighter headsets. The majority of your consumers don't want to go buy a $2,000 gaming computer, right? Mm-hmm. So I, there's a parallel between your question with AI and then immersive development in general, I think. But yeah, so a, a lot of the the modern... AI algorithms, they are extremely intense. When you start, when you start looking at machine learning um, and neural networks, the, the amount of multi-threading, especially for a neural network that goes on, I mean, it's extreme. And uh, you can run those things on uh, like a, a mobile device or uh, let's see, Oculus has the Quest. Sure, those, those processors can handle smaller algorithms, um, you know, neural nets and whatnot, but I, I do think you're right. If that's what you were suggesting. Yeah, it was. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, I mean, on that point, I'm thinking about this now, do you feel that the future of, of AI designers will just lean on big tech's implementations uh, of their own hosted on their own cloud AI and that designers will not really be creating uh, and coding new AI but really just utilizing it through their toolkits and their APIs. Yeah. Yeah. If, if you, if you look at modern AI, you know, a lot of the AI that we do in game development, it, at least I heard it called in academia was good old fashioned AI or GOF AI. Like <laughs> literally that's what good it's called. Good old fashioned AI. Yeah. <laughs> that's, when, that's a little oxymoronic, but yeah. I had it on a test and I'm not kidding you. And I didn't think it was a thing. 
So I ruled that answer out. But the <laughs> yeah, good old old fashioned AI. Uh, it's, uh, that's that's more what we're doing in uh, video games. But if you talk modern AI, uh, neural networks, you know, any kind of development that you see in artificial intelligence today, it's there's going to be a neural network somewhere in there. And then machine learning, well, where's that come up? Machine learning is used to train these neural networks. Uh, I, machine learning is used for a ton of things as well, but all of those operations are extremely complex. Like you could make a, a simple neural network without a whole lot of effort, but it just gets so complex so quickly that, yeah, there's tools out there. There's toolkits, uh, APIs, things that have been developed by companies like uh, Microsoft, Google, um, and they're built so well. You've got um, so many things that have been built for you, uh, and, and it's all open source. TensorFlow, um, Keras, uh, you know, those, those are two libraries that people use in Python that are extremely popular and they're built extremely well. Um, and then in the game world, you've got Unity. I, I, unfortunately, I can't speak to those who are developing in the Unreal platform, platform but Unity, they've actually released a, neuro, or a machine learning library. So I did not know that, and I'm extremely interested to look into that because I've I've heard of the other ones that you've mentioned, but I didn't know that Unity had their own thing going on. They do, yeah. So you know, like a lot of these terms are really intimidating, like massive multi-threading and uh, simul like asynchronous calculations, uh, training, deep learning. Um, fortunately. There's teams of engineers that have built these things and they've built it extremely well. Uh, so yeah, Unity has come out and they've actually released a library and I haven't used it. Um, I've used things like a TensorFlow and Keras, but um, my understanding is that the machine learning library released from Unity and you know, you can go in there and you can use their, uh, their, their neural networks and uh, some of the implementations that they've had to train their neural networks with, um, I don't know, gradient descent is a really common algorithm used for that. So you don't necessarily need to learn all of those things these days. But back to your original question, um, will people actually be developing their own AI? You know, in, in, in the future, no. And I don't think that there's any shame in it because knowing how to use these these tools, in my opinion, is much much more useful than knowing how to make them. Right. Um, yeah. That's, that's definitely the, the route that I'm going, not by choice. I, I, I feel as if I'm, I'm not of the mind where I'm going to be developing my own AI, but I am of the mind of utilizing what's out there. Um, and I think that most of the people would fall into that camp. I think it takes a pretty special mind to want to, you know, we talked, we touched on this earlier, it takes a special mind to want to make it yourself, but it is, uh, it gives me hope that, that someone who has a lot of experience with AI is is saying, yeah, you don't need to make it yourself. Like lean on what's sure. out there. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's already a craft in itself to learn how those work and master and utilize those because it's 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 already complex enough. You're right. Yeah. If you get back to the heart of what we're doing as indie developers, ultimately, like, yeah, I love my AI, but I really want my game to, you know, I want the the final product I've got in my head. I want that product to become a reality and yeah. moving forward for me, absolutely moving forward for me. You know, if I find a tool 
that all I have to do is learn how to use it as opposed to try and write something and then learn how to, yeah, man, you go with what's been made. And when you're talking about these big companies releasing open source software, yeah, it's, I mean, it's a no brainer. Yeah. Figure out how to use what they've made for you for sure. Before I let you go, I, I want to be selfish here and, and touch on that, you know, trying to actualize your own projects. And you were talking about Unity's own uh, uh, machine learning implementation. I My next project after I release this one, uh, I want to target augmented reality, specifically standalone. And one of the things that is, is the basis of that is user gesture recognition, you know, being able to interpret different finger gestures, et cetera, versus you know, traditionally using a, a controller and user gesture recognition uh, is not what most people would think is powered by AI. You think of, you know, agent behavior, but AI is the driver behind being able to interpret those things. So I'm coming from a place of, of pretty oblivious of the relationship of, of that, even though I know on a fundamental level that that's what's driving it. Can you touch a little bit about user gesture recognition? Because it's I know it's something that we've talked about a little bit before, and I know you know a lot about it. Yeah, so I hear I hear what you're saying. And, um, you know, especially for game developers or somebody who hasn't really worked with AI a whole lot before, when you think about AI, you know, you just think about something that makes intelligent decisions or uh, more moreover for a game developer, you just think about agents acting smartly or intelligently. Um, and then you've got this concept like gesture recognition, and it's somehow AI is doing it. How does the AI tie into this uh, gesture recognition? Well, a really easy comparison is between um, facial recognition software and gesture recognition software. You've got a, a neural network, which is just acting as a classifier, and it takes the input data, and then it spits out a classification. So if it's a particular person it's going to give you a, a name for a face that you give it if you've trained it to work on facial input data or pixelated data. If you've got a gesture you're feeding it, you're looking more at positions of controllers over time, you know, rotations, velocities, positions, and it looks at a uh, predefined, maybe predefined, or it could be a, a time span, but it looks at the movement that happened and it goes back through its through its algorithm. Uh, you know, you've, you've trained it with, you would have already had to have pre-trained it with gestures. Um, and it will spit out a classification as, hey, that was a, uh, a throw or something. But so, I, if, you know, you're, you're talking about augmented reality on a standalone device. Um, one of the one of the, the big things with the modern artificial intelligence is the computation power that's required. So, um, yeah, you can still pull it off. Absolutely. Uh, Snapchat does it. Uh, Facebook does it, you know, and they're, I don't know if they're doing it on the cloud or, or, or where they're doing it, but, um, there's libraries out there built specifically for, um, mobile devices. So yeah, you can absolutely do it. But one thing that I, I really want to emphasize here is it, it might not be necessary with my game, what I've what I've done has, it, there, I mean, there's no AI in the gesture recognition that I've built. It's just it's just all mathematical. Can uh, you, you know, can you dive more into that? Actually, what do you mean by that? So there is no AI. You're just how are you mathematically classifying gestures? Yeah, so I guess you have a good point there. It, 
I don't know if I can definitively say it isn't AI. Just never considered it that. I'm constantly monitoring the uh, the user with their controller. So, um, you know, if they're moving controller to the right and the left one's going to the left or something, I'm constantly doing calculations on that. And, um, you know, I mean, it's just it's just really basic calculus and vector math. It's not very complex. And after a certain threshold is met, say like, okay, the user has the ball and he's putting the controller down at a velocity of this amount in this direction, we can conclude definitively, well, we're pretty confident that he's trying to dribble the ball. Right, so right, to, yeah, that, that makes sense. Or, yeah, so then the same thing happens with a pass or a jump shot. Um, you know, it's this algorithm's calculating the trajectory of the controller and it's looking at the hoop and it's looking at other players and it just classifies it as, yeah, he's aiming for this. And unfortunately, you know, like with the, especially like the Vive one, uh, the, the, I haven't used the knuckles yet, but the, the controllers that are out there, there's not a whole lot of tactile input. So you've got to be able to figure out at least in a basketball game, like what is this person trying to do and then assist them at least a little bit. Yeah, man, this has been such a wonderful talk. It's, it's so nice to pick your brain about this stuff you know, such an in-depth conversation. And I would love to invite you back for another time where we can jump into that, into, into more specifics, especially as, you know, time goes on. Um, did you, did you hear about the new thing with the iOS 13, how they, they, someone dug into the code of iOS 13 and found like a readme that exposed that they, and essentially confirmed that they've been working on their own AR glasses and stuff like that. I think this stuff as soon as a big tech company, you know, brings it to the consumer market and it becomes mainstream, I mean, gestures and AI and all this stuff is just going to be uh, absolutely essential if you're if you're an experienced developer. Yeah, man, I would love to come back and talk more about this in depth. Um, Let's yeah, schedule it, man. Great. I love this sort of stuff. And throughout this podcast, there's been multiple times where. I just want to learn more and learn more. And I, I knew that for this format, you know, we want to keep it to 30 minutes to an hour or whatever. But I think that this could definitely be a multi-part series where we dive deeper into this stuff because for those of us out there that want to do more stuff like this, but feel intimidated for, for someone to break it down into these more layman terms for us is, is it's, I, I feel like I've learned a lot just, just doing this podcast today. So That's I, awesome. yeah, yeah, I definitely think that we should we should continue to talk about this. I'll have you back on here, but before I let you go, I I want to make sure that people know, you know, where you're at on Twitter. Are you on Instagram? Like, where can they reach you if if they want to re reach out to you uh, about this sort yeah. of stuff? Yeah, absolutely, man. So um, my 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 tag, and I I've been using this for I don't know, like the last twenty years or something crazy, but it's fat boyish. Uh, so it, that's P-H-A-T-B-O-Y-S-H, Fatboyish. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram. Uh, I, I'm not actively posting a lot of my content there, but I'm always more than happy to talk about any of this. Uh, if you want to see some of my work, you can use that uh, tag Fatboyish, and you can find me on GitHub. I've, uh, I've actually got a repository that's a subsystem for my AI up there. Um, yeah, go check that out. Or um, 
Yeah, on you on YouTube, you can see my work too. If you just search for my name, uh, Joey Mansfield, you should be able to find my channel pretty easily there. Gotcha. So Twitter, YouTube, Instagram, GitHub, it's all under at p h a t b o y s h. That's it, man. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I can't thank you enough for joining me today, especially on a Friday night. It's it's pretty late over there for you, huh? You're on the East Coast? Yeah, but I mean, I'd still be up for another hour or so. Uh, 2.30, 3 o'clock, that's a good bedtime. Yeah, for sure. But but yeah, I'll catch you around. Um, anyone else out there listening, if you're interested in stuff, at Fatboy SH. Um, but yeah, thanks again for joining me. Yeah, man, absolutely. Thanks for having me, and I look forward to doing it again. Awesome. Have a good night. You too, man. Thanks to everyone out there listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed it, you can follow along on the podcast Twitter account, which is at Indie underscore Immersive for updates on future episodes. And I'll also be posting those on my personal account, which is at Wuchi Online, spelled W-U-C-H-I Online. If you have any sort of feedback or recommendations on interviews or topics, I would love to hear them. And if you really enjoy the podcast so far, it just got approved on iTunes. It's also on Spotify and, and all the major podcast providers. So if you do enjoy it, please rate and review. I think that's the best way to get the word out there about it. Um, But yeah, thanks a bunch for listening and I uh, hope you tune in next time.